Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. And I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, because that's where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we'll be discussing the availability of Narcan, the treatment for opioid overdoses, which is now available over the counter, and Mexican aliens. But first... Let's go to the picket line where the United Auto Workers have called a strike. I think we'll get a little bit into the strategy behind what they are doing, but it's probably good to start with what is the UAW asking for in this strike? I'll give you a summary here from the Washington Post. Uh, What are the issues? More pay. The union is demanding a 36% wage increase over four years. Full-time employees at the big three automakers make between $18 and $32 an hour, depending on seniority. Uh, They claim wages have not kept up with inflation. The union also points to high executive pay and strong company profits as a justification for their demand. Uh, Automakers have offered wage increases ranging from 17.5 to 20% over a a four-and-a-half-year contract. Uh, They also argue that full-time workers receive compensation beyond their hourly wages, including profit-sharing payments and other bonuses. Over the past four years, full-time workers have each received tens of thousands of dollars in profit-sharing, which temporary workers do not get. They're also calling for an end to tiered employment. The union wants an end to this tiered employment system, which means newer workers work for lower pay and lesser benefits. The union also wants manufacturers to rely less on temporary workers who are effectively in their own lowest tier. The companies say hiring temporary workers allows them to operate facilities efficiently, respond to surges in customer demand, and give full-time employees more work flexibility. They're asking for uh, better employment benefits. Uh, UAW is trying to restore benefits that workers lost during contract talks around the time of the Great Recession in 2008. Workers hired after 2007 generally have less generous benefits than longer-term workers, and the union wants better benefits across the board. Labor organizers object to the amount of mandatory overtime workers have faced, saying employees are burned out from working 50 to 60 hours a week. The union is demanding that workers be paid for 40 hours a week, but work for only 32 hours. I'll say that again. The union is demanding that workers be paid for 40 hours a week, but work for only 32 hours. Uh, They're also asking for worker protections in the electric vehicle area. The union wants the right to strike over proposed plant closures as Detroit transitions from gas-powered cars to more electric vehicles. Manufacturers have been shuttering old facilities that made internal combustion vehicles to shift workers and resources to EV production. So those are the issues over which the UAW has called a strike. Dylan, what do you make of the UAW's demands and their move to walk out on the big three automakers? 
Uh, so it's it's really fascinating. Um, I was not following all the rumbling up to it, so it, you know it came as a little bit of a surprise to me. Um, but it's interesting their their tactics. Um, I think I'll defer to Dan to to kind of detail those. They're not. It's not like um, the the writers' strike uh, with Hollywood where nobody's working. Um, it's very targeted sort of striking, or actually it's not even, tar- anyway, I'll let Dan explain <laughs> explain the nature of, of how they're doing it, but it's not quite the same thing, so that's interesting, so there's that. Um, it's kind of telegraphed that maybe it'll it'll cascade and get worse um, as if the negotiations drag out longer. Um, so that's an interesting tactic, so kind of saying, okay, we're striking, but we're not going all the way yet because we don't want to completely damage the industry that we depend on. So there seems to be something shrewd about that. Um, it is also worth noting, as much as I agree some of the demands are you know, pretty on the face of it ridiculous, um, that the idea is that they want to bargain and negotiate. And so some of this is symbolic. Like the pay increase is basically equal to the increase of CEO pay of the big three, or at least of GM CEO, um, where they feel like you know the CEOs are getting this outsized raise and the workers aren't really seeing the benefit. Um, so I doubt the final negotiated raise, uh, if there is one, uh, to the extent there is one, will it all be that large. Um, but they're making a statement, right? They want to call attention to that. Uh, so they're very media savvy, I think. Um, and, and same thing with, you know, although we'll see, uh, but, you know, wanting to work 32 hours and get paid for 40, maybe that's just something you, you start out with and then you say, okay, we'll concede this and something you never expected to get anyway. So it, to be fair, you can't just evaluate, okay, what are they demanding and how unreasonable is that? Well, if they're good negotiators, they don't expect to actually get everything that they're demanding. Um, that said, it it is interesting to me that, you know, some of the ideas to me seem in contradiction. So um, the temp worker uh, side of it, I think if you want higher wages for union workers, one of the results of that is probably going to be more temp workers, right? Because the company's going to be a bit more cautious about who are they going to let into this union uh, where the pay is at a certain level, a certain higher floor, um, and it's very hard to let an employee go um, unless they have uh, serious attendance issues. I mean, that's basically the only criteria in many cases. Um, so the union demanding less temp work is almost against their own interests, whether they realize it or not. Um, and the other thing is is just uh, the, kind of a broader meta observation. Um, The U.S. auto industry accounts for about 3% of the U.S. economy, um, which is not nothing. That's actually quite significant. We have a very large economy, uh, but that is incredibly diminished from historic uh, levels, uh, percentages. Um, It's not quite what it used to be, and it might not, even though it's making national news, and I think rightly so, it might not amount to the sort of crisis uh, and uh, urgency uh, that the strikers are hoping for, uh, as it would have, say, 40 years ago. Um, so I'm interested to see how it pans out. I'm interested to see if these, you know, as I said, these demands that I'm taking to be somewhat symbolic and somewhat, you know, meant to just get the negotiation started, how, whether they become hardline. You know, maybe maybe I'm wrong and my read is wrong. Um, and if that's the case, I could imagine a pretty long gridlock uh, between uh, the automakers and the, the unions. Um, so... 
It's interesting. I mean, I, I, from my perspective, from the perspective of Christian social thought, whether it be Catholic social teaching or neo-Calvinist or others, um, you, you know, workers have a right to organize. Um, I think it should be a, a free right in which, you know, you can either be a member of the union or not. Um, for a while, we had a right to work state here in Michigan. I believe we still have some of those laws in effect, but some have been uh, t- uh, taken back. Um, but I think that works. I think it's good to have that threat of unionization as someone who's worked at multiple factories. I always got a better deal at the factory without a union. I was treated better. I got a better wage. I got better benefits. Um, I don't know if I would have if that company was not worried about uh, labor organizing, right? So there's, there is a positive externality, even for the people not in the unions, whatever you're feeling about unions is. Um, but that said, I definitely don't like the idea of forcing companies to be all union or all one union. Um, and, and it is really interesting in terms of the dynamics of the market and that you have one union representing the workers working for three different companies. So they actually have more monopoly power here than the actual companies. And they're almost forcing the companies to work in a sort of cartel uh, or a sort of, you know, um, oligopoly way in that they have to now negotiate together (laughs) to end the strike, um, which is consolidating power on both ends. um, And that usually leads to inefficiencies when it comes to uh, the market. Um, So I worry about that. I mean, we it's not as if there's no foreign competition anymore. There still is. In fact, 400,000 Auto jobs in the United States are uh, U.S. Affili- um, uh, yeah, affiliates, uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, of foreign, foreign-owned companies. Uh, that's about 20% of the auto workers in the United States, if my numbers are correct. Um, so that's, that's a big deal, uh, even right here in the United States. Uh, but certainly foreign competition is something that if any of these people want to keep their jobs in the long term, uh, you need to be able to compete with. Uh, in the 80s, we saw the unions, the cities, and the companies uh, trying to push back and you know anti-competitively push out uh, the Japanese at the time and later the, the Koreans, and they failed. Instead of trying to better themselves and produce a better product at a more efficient rate um, and compete, they tried not to compete, and it did not work. Uh, just look at Flint today. Look at Detroit today. It did not work. It was bad for everyone. Um, so I always... Of course, being someone who's lived in Michigan my whole life, I worry that it's going to be yet another instance of that. Dan, I want you to get uh, get you in here on particularly the strategy. You sent a really interesting piece from the Wall Street Journal that we'll include in the show notes about the strategy behind what the UAW is doing. But I, I want to make two points building off of what you were saying at the end there, Dylan. So I am uh, personally uh, opposed to unions only in two senses. One... I am opposed to public sector unions, full stop. The dynamic, and this is not the kind of union action that we're talking about here with the UAW, um, but I think it's appropriate to make this point because it explains the contrast that exists between public sector and private sector unions. Um, The give and take of management and labor sitting down with competing interests Bargaining over what that arrangement will be exists in private sector unions versus private sector companies and their management. Setting aside for the moment just how tied up in government 
auto workers are or auto companies are. It was set that aside for a moment, but the the theory behind it there, I think, is is pretty clear. That does not exist when it comes to public sector unions. What you have at the end of the day there are two groups of people sitting down bargaining over other people's money. It does not work. Even people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt recognize that public sector unions do not work. Um, they are and in, just look in most major cities, particularly the one that I lived in for about 15 years in Chicago, the power brought – political power brought to bear by the Chicago Teachers Union in particular uh, is monstrous. And the things that they do that trap kids in underperforming schools are monstrous. But that is not the kind of situation that we're talking about here. The other way – the other – way in which I am opposed to unions is I am opposed to anyone being required and forced to join a union in order to have a job. So if you do not want to be a part of the union, you should not have to be a part of the union. So in as much as there are always going to be people who do not want to be a part of the union, uh, I'm opposed to that kind of compulsory forcing them to be a part of it. I, I think what you also illustrated here is that it, a lot of what is going on and I think a lot of what we see from these kinds of union negotiations is trying to maintain an old order, right? Trying to keep things the same as they have been without recognizing the direction in which a lot of these industries are going. And to me, the seeking protection from the evolution into electric vehicles is one of the more fascinating parts of this. Like the wanting to be paid for 40 hours for working only 32 hours is exactly the kind of thing that I would expect to hear, especially at the onset, right? You're, you're right, Dylan. Um, at the onset of a negotiation, right? You start with you know, your biggest ask and so you have room to work your way back. I get that. The protectionism demands as it comes to electric vehicles in particular uh, I find really, really fascinating and I think is probably going to – I think it should create some interesting political tension. Uh, one of the other things that does give me a lot of pause about especially the way a lot of people talk about unions is we should be clear what they are. They are private political organizations. They have a lot of political power. All the more reason why I do not think anybody should be compelled to be a part of a private political organization because that's what it is or give money to a private political organization if they do not think that it truly represents their interests. But in as much as unions and the left in American politics have largely been on the same page, what has been the American left who's been the driving force behind the idea of so many subsidies for electric vehicles, trying to move us in the direction of electric vehicles to the extent that this is sustainable and affordable and they are producing cars that work well and that people can afford – um, there are still a lot of things to be worked out. I don't know if anybody saw the story of uh, former Michigan. Everything comes back to Michigan. Former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm, who is doing this tour across the country, trying to demonstrate how you know easy it is to drive across the country in electric vehicles. And this we'll, we'll put the the link to the story in the show notes as well. The scene that uh, Scott Lincecum from Cato described as being out of an episode of Veep transpires where they couldn't find enough charging stations and people were taking them up. So somebody parked a gas powered car in front of one of the charging stations and families got mad who were trying to charge their electric vehicles. And the whole thing was was ridiculous. Look, we're not there yet, but 
the tension that should exist between the people who are proponents, the most vocal proponents, especially of government subsidies to try to move us down the road, so to speak, towards more electric vehicles, and these unions whose political contributions overwhelmingly go to that set of politicians being in opposition to moving down the road towards electric vehicles is something that is going to be interesting to watch them all try and work out. One of the things that helps me work through thinking through these issues is, is a bit of historical context. When Dylan and Eric make these distinctions between free and compulsory unionism, between public sector and private sector, I think those distinctions are important. There's also a way in which the tale of American unionism is very different from the tale of trade unionism in many other countries, particularly in our case, the, the most the most uh, different in a lot of ways is is Canada. Um, there's a tradition of Canadian trade unionism that grows out of a sort of Kuyperian trade union sentiment. You have these Christian trade unions, those sorts of things. You have these in Europe as well. And not everyone's trade unionism is like our trade unionism. And 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 we'll get we'll drill more specifically down into the distinctives of the UAW and that sort of thing later. One of the things in the history of, of American trade unionism is in the early days, it's very politically radical. Um, that is not always – that is the case in many other nations as well. There is a concerted effort made by the AFL-CIO and other organizations in the, in the 40s and the 50s in the United States to sort of stamp out that political ra radicalism. But you have this legacy of a very conflict-centered nature of organization – that persists in American unionism because of this uh, early uh, political radicalism. And the focus is on collective bargaining. There are many other things that many other unions – that many unions do. There are many other things that the United Auto Workers Union does. But collective bargaining and strike action has like an outsized <clears throat> uh, grip on the imagination of not only the American public, but I think American unions themselves. The UAW's membership peaks in the late 70s, and it peaks at something around a million and a half uh, people. And we have been in fits and starts in a slow decline ever since. Um, the UAW now is composed of 400,000 active members, and... 580,000 inactive retired members. There are more members of the UAW that are not working than are working. Um, that's partially as a result of American demographics, partly as a result of the contraction of the American auto industry. There are a lot of different things in play here. One of the things to note is that uh, the workers we're talking about here at these big three plants that's 146,000 members. The UAW organizes people who are, in fact, not auto workers. They organize uh, auto workers uh, outside of the big three or attempt to. Um, so this is a small part of the active part of the union. Now, these contracts touch on those inactive members because part of this is about pensions, everything else. American labor relations with the big three get reset in 2008 because we have a situation 
in which due to mismanagement, due to financial catastrophe, due to all sorts of factors, American automakers were brought to the brink. Uh, Ford Motor Company, less so. Ford Motor Company did not end up <clears throat> seeking uh, government bailouts. The other automakers did. There was immense political pressure put on the United Auto Workers Union to uh, have those con participate in the renegotiation of those contracts because the with the implicit threat that those contracts would be dissolved by the force of law if necessary because it was deemed politically essential by many members of both political parties in the United States that these automakers continue. Um, there was some debate about that. Mitt Romney famously wrote a, uh, a uh, editorial about how they should have let them fail. That did not do... Uh, then Governor Romney, now Senator Romney, any favors when he ran for president in the state of Michigan. And a lot of this, as Eric rightly points out, is about a return to that pre-2008 world. That world has changed. Uh, that world has changed. We have seen increased production from foreign automakers in the United States. We have seen automakers in the United States, such as the Ford Motor Company, essentially abandon entire categories of automobile manufacturing, like the sedan. Ford does not make a sedan. They continue to make a car. It's called the Mustang. Everything else is jacked up because that's where the money is, be it in trucks, SUVs, even small things that would be sedans but are jacked up suitably well to be classified as station wagons. Uh, much well, it's where the, the money is, but it's also where the demand is. It is. It's where the money is. It's where the demand is. And Ford has made those changes very, very aggressively. Um, so the industry has changed. We also have the emergence of a new North American automaker in Tesla that is, in fact, more highly valued than any of the big three, is not part of these negotiations and is expanding in both foreign and domestic markets. We also have China, which is where most electric vehicles are manufactured now. We are not aware of that because they're not in the American market. We don't see them in the streets. They are in European markets. They are in China. This is something that the union is very right to be concerned about uh, because they do not organize in the People's Republic of China because they do not allow this sort of trade unionism in the People's Republic of China, voluntary or involuntary. So we have a situation which calls for <clears throat> a new strategy on the part of automakers. Some automakers are making those sorts of changes, moving to high margin vehicles, increasing constructions of plants outside of the United States or in areas of the United States where uh, the UAW has not successfully or, or it's mostly outside of the United States uh, to get away in part from this sort of organization to cope with this. The union knows this. The union is also changing itself. Uh, the new union president, Sean Fain, not to be confused with the Irish political party of the startlingly similar name, although very different spellings for both, uh, is the first president elected uh, democratically in the UAW. The UAW used to have certain persons in leadership in the union voted for union president, but not every single rank and file member. He had very strong criticisms of the prior administration of the UAW on two counts. One, 
He believed it too cozy with the big three automakers that he thought in agreeing to the sort of concessions in 2008 and and sort of sustaining those since then, that that was sort of self-serving in the interest of union elites uh, that became allied with automakers. There were also very serious and genuine corruption issues, some of which have resulted in criminal penalties for those folks. So he wanted a more confrontational union. He also wanted a cleaner union. And I think we can all agree if we don't agree with more confrontational, a cleaner union that abides by the law is a better union. He came in and as part of these reforming initiatives, and this is all detailed in that Wall Street Journal story that Eric mentioned, how the UAW tossed its old playbook and pursued a surprise attack strike strategy by Nora Eckert, Mike uh, Calais and Ryan Felton, which is excellently reported, has interviews with all the sort of appropriate parties. He took out a lot of the old union guard and replaced them with a lot of people from other avenues of trade unionism, particularly service employee unions and media unions. Um, both of these union, trade forms of trade unionism have, uh, you know, had some victories lately. Media is one of the rare fields that is more organized today than it was 20 years ago. Um, there has been successful organizing at the New York Times, at all sorts of major news outlets. Um, this is – the question is, is, are these methods that have been successful in the media space, are they – are, are, can they be adapted – to industrial unions, which have very different sort of dynamics, um, you know, very different industries. And he seems, uh, the union seems sensitive to that. Um, the initial sort of idea that was tossed around was a sort of strike across all the big three. Just shut down everything, everybody strikes. Um, there are lots of downsides to that, including this would drain the union strike fund in a matter of, you know, one or two months, it would be gone. And then they would have no leverage. Another strategy battled around was to do strategic sort of strikes at plants to bottleneck supplies. And this was decided against because this could result in layoffs in, um, a lot of places if these bottlenecks persist, could hurt the competitiveness of all of the big three uh, globally, which the union is aware of. They've decided this strategy to maintain like sort of maximum flexibility of some plants strike, some don't. And the idea is they don't want to hurt any of the big three automakers more than any of the others. So the idea is that you'd have some sort of parity into where the plants are, are striking. The other idea is you don't want to disrupt supply chains to add to pain to workers and, you, uh, and potential plant shutdowns. And you want to maintain a flexibility going forward where you can escalate if necessary. I don't know if this is a workable strategy. Um, this is a better strategy than those two other strategies that the union did reject. But part of the problem with negotiating with all three together, which is something very unique and also new with this new round of negotiations, it used to be the UAW might do strike actions that were coordinated, but they would be negotiating contracts you know, for their members in General Motors if they worked at General Motors for their members at 
Daimler Chrysler, Fiat Chrysler, uh, Stellagis is it now? I, I forget. Uh, it's been through many hands uh, or, or, you know, Ford Motor Company. Because the reality, the economic realities of all of those individual firms are different. Um, what they are able to give and take in negotiations is different because they are different companies that draw from, you know, <laughs> from different available revenue streams and all that sort of thing. And by negotiating with them all together, I think you end up maybe positioning yourself to get the worst possible deal for your members uh, and not the best. So um, it's it's something to watch. There's a lot new going on here, and it's an exciting time to be reading and talking about trade unionism. The story you pointed out about uh, then-governor, uh, ex-governor Mitt Romney and the piece that he wrote about uh, letting the auto companies fail – um, just does a good job to explain the difference between an argument like that being, I think, largely right on the merits and also politically wrong. Uh, it certainly was not a help to Mitt Romney to have offered that kind of an opinion. But you know, the this is one of the problems I think that you're inevitably going to have even with public sector unions like uh, – or. Uh, private sector unions, excuse me, private sector unions like this that I think, you know, can do good and should exist, uh, again, assuming that there are enough people who wish to be a part of an organization like that, is it that it does not allow for some of the economic realities that may be necessary for some of these companies. So you can go back and you can watch uh, from roughly around 1980 an episode or two of the Phil Donahue show, which is on YouTube, in which the guest is the economist Milton Friedman, in which he is asked a question about Chrysler uh, potentially going bankrupt. And it's like, well, we shouldn't let Chrysler go bankrupt. The government should save Chrysler, right? And you know, Phil Donahue asks in this very Phil Donahue-ish way. And Milton's answer is, of course, the correct one, which is, of course, if it is a poorly enough run company, we should let it fail. Because what people misunderstand, in part, I think, because you know what I think we can blame for part of this? The game Monopoly, right? Because when you go bankrupt in Monopoly, you're out. The game is over for you. That's not how it works in reality. Mono uh, bankruptcy allows for poorly run companies that have made poor decisions to reorganize themselves in such a way as to hopefully be profitable going forward. Or in the worst case scenario of a, you know, should a Chrysler be allowed to fail? If it fails completely, the assets that are owned by Chrysler do not vanish into thin air. They are sold off to other people who have better and more productive uses for them than Chrysler did. We have had car companies that have gone out of existence before. It is not the end of the world. There, there is nothing written in the stars that necessitates a General Motors, a Ford, and then a – I can't remember the name of the, the – now the parent company that owns Chrysler. Great job branding, guys. Exactly. Um, there's nothing written in the stars that says we have to have those three. And we're seeing this right now, too, with the rise of Tesla, which comes back to the whole electric vehicle point, right? One of the things as, as you know, who has two thumbs and lots of different opinions about Elon Musk? This guy. But 
One of the things that I've always thought was interesting about Elon Musk and Tesla is that he's finally accomplishing what so many people were asking for for so long, mostly through political means, which is we should be moving towards electric vehicles. Okay, cool. My answer was always great. If it is A, what people want, and B, economically feasible, great. Totally fine to have it. And Elon Musk is actually doing that. And there is this political reaction to him doing that that I find fascinating, that people are mad that, one, he seems to be having a good time doing everything that he's doing, and two, he's making it available now to regular people so that an electric vehicle is no longer the status symbol that it was. I think some of these perceptions and political realities are wrapped up in the kind of demands that we're seeing here about trying to protect these workers with these three big auto firms against the move towards electric vehicles. Um, so this is, again, while I think it is perfectly reasonable to have private sector unions like this, to have the kind of bargaining that they're engaged in, which you know should fail or succeed based on the merits of it and based on what's sustainable. And if both of these parties drive themselves, pardon the pun, into a brick wall, that's a choice that they have made together. And they should have to face the consequences of those choices. So I think the role of technology in this is interesting. So you mentioned the electric cars. So the unions, I pre presume, are opposed to that because their members do not have the same skill set needed in terms of manufacturing. I imagine um, it's a lot more robotics, a lot more management yeah. of, of more advanced so, machinery like that. Yeah. Similarly, uh, again, uh, the Hollywood writer's strike, uh, a big centerpiece of that is the role of AI in writing. Um, and... I remember, I think it was like Stephen Colbert at The Late Show when he decided he's going to strike, you know, he's going to go off the air in solidarity. He put all of his writers on screen. There was more than 20 people behind him. And I couldn't help but think that at least 15 of those people had to be redundant. Um, Dan, uh, who's sitting right here, has this great concept of... Uh, being a writer above replacement. Uh, so using using the the war acronym from baseball um, uh, that for the non baseball fans out yeah. there, wins above replacement yeah. is an advanced metric that basically looks at an individual player and says he is worth this much more than just the average replacement level ball player. Right. So you know, if you play around with AI and you give it a good prompt, you can get an essay uh, that. You know, it's fine as far as like a opinion blog post, op-ed blog post. You can probably do it if you have decent ideas for plot. It's not going to be anything that really reaches your soul. Like I think there's in inherent limits to what AI can do. But if you're not a good writer, if you're just kind of a medium writer, you know, if you're if you're in that replaceable, you know, below replacement um, range, that's that's how that's who's going to be threatened. Here And really, to me, the challenge should be, how do we become better than a robot? Um, and the same sort of similarly, or how do we use it better? And I know that's part of the negotiation with the writers. Um, who gets to use it is a big, big question. Um, but with, with the automakers, you know, and the unions, why shouldn't they be saying, hey, we need to put together a plan in the next five to 10 years to get our people trained 
to be able to handle this new kind of manufacturing, which appears to be more competitive now than ever was in the past and may in fact be the future direction of the industry. If that's the case, you should need you should be working to build the human capital your workers need uh, to stay employed, in fact, to stay competitive uh, in that employment. And instead, they are doing what they did in the 80s, which is trying to make things stay exactly how they were. And it did not work for Flint and Detroit. I will just say again, I, I live here in Michigan. It was bad. It's a bad strategy. You need to be forward thinking when it comes to manufacturing. That is how uh, our the U.S. manufacturing sector has continued to be as productive as ever. And it's because embrace of new technology. Um, and, but and simultaneously while employing fewer people. That to is do true. It. That is true. Um, but different people as well and different skill sets. Um, People can learn things. Uh, people do not need to be stuck with their one skill they learned 20 years ago when somebody trained them on the job. They can learn new things. Um, and I think we need to have a higher view of people's capabilities um, and a higher view of everyone's responsibility um, in terms of earning their own income. Um, if you want to earn, continue earning that income, you need to look at the industry and ask how it's changing and ask how do we need to change um, rather than say, how can we keep everything the same? There's a very real crisis, though, in that most of the members of the UAW are not in the workforce. Yes. They are retired. Yes. Yeah. And contracts were negotiated when they were workers yeah. on their behalf that promised them certain things that the union has failed to deliver on. Um, I think that this is a problem with defined pension benefits like this because they're, I mean, I think, you know, Unless you are in an industry in which, uh, you know, you are literally printing dollars. Like the United States government can have a defined pension benefit because at the end of the day, you can just print that money to send out into Social Security checks. And maybe there are economic consequences to that, like a general rise in inflation, this sort of thing. But you can do it. You can honor that commitment, at least in nominal dollar terms. General Motors can't, and that's because of the realities of the industry. Now, General Motors made those promises, and those were the wrong promises to make. They were promises that we now see that General Motors couldn't keep. And I think there's a legitimate question for a union, particularly like the United Auto Workers Union, that you know most of the people it's representing are folks who aren't in the workforce today. And the degree to which they're being represented is the degree to which they are holding firms' feet to the fire to get those pension benefits secured. Now, there's a conflict here. You might be able to do this, but you would have to do it on the backs of present workers. And that creates – and this is one of the problems with uh, – you know, maybe maybe it's an insoluble problem. Maybe it's not. But when you have collective bargaining for undifferentiated workers as opposed to people doing particular jobs or people of particularly particular statuses. And there's a there's a there's a big because a lot of the energy for trade unionism, and again I pointed this Wall Street Journal story, comes from a feeling of solidarity which is a spiritual value as much as a material value. You have this great quote where there's a woman talking about the strike strategy and, you know, some places are going to be closing down, some places are not. 
And her observation, she was hesitant about it because she thought it was important that everybody feel the pain together. That this is part of what being in this together is, is that you take these collective actions together. And, you know, there's another point in which somebody says, you know, with this new strategy, this is going to involve people having, generating a new conception of solidarity and a new sort of spiritual center to trade unionism. And there was, there was another, another person who said in the story, you're not negotiating with the companies, you're negotiating with your own people. There's two negotiations going on at once as, as, as you're the head of the trade union. And one is with your members and one is with the company. And there are like, there are, there's, a, there's, a, there's an extra dimension to this challenge um, that is sort of heightened by these new economic realities. We do need to move on, but uh, I want to, I, I do want to make the point about, I think this is one of the problems, and this is why it is good to point out to people who often like to argue f in favor of unions and unionization as if it is an unalloyed good. There are no unalloyed goods. Uh, it creates a problem of trade-offs. And I think one of the things you need to consider is that when the economic realities change underneath massive companies like this, and when you have a contract like you have described, Dan, that locks in certain kinds of benefits... Uh, that may be in the interest of everybody or at least enough in the interest of everybody at the time it is signed. In the future, it is possible that the underlying fundamentals have changed so significantly that it becomes impossible. And it is in nobody's interest to drive these companies into bankruptcy and into failure. And one of my problems is that it creates this kind of inflexible mentality that says this has been promised to us and it is essentially a suicide pact now. I think, again, to draw back the contrast between public and private sector unions, you see this much more pronounced in the crisis created by public sector unions, particularly in states like Illinois, where I used to live, where written into the state constitution is a guarantee that benefits that have been essentially now ruled by the state Supreme Court, not only accrued but promised to be accrued, cannot be diminished. It is reading this clause of the Constitution of the state of Illinois like a suicide pact because the state of Illinois has at least, the last time I checked, about a $250 billion unfunded pension liability. It cannot continue to exist like that. It is headed for a kind of disaster in Illinois, unlike the federal government. It can ask the federal government to print some more money in order to pay this down. It can't print its own money. It is the kind of thing that I would expect the state of Illinois to possibly try to do, uh, but it, it would not be a good idea. Um, so I, I think we need to at least recognize that uh, this is not an unalloyed good. It is not something that whatever it produces is fantastic for everybody because the reality in the future can change and they need to be able to change with it. And these contracts, these agreements – often serve as impediments to being able to deal with changing underlying fundamentals than as a way to move forward. And again, the general point about contracts is, you know, a huge point of contracts is they tell you how to get out of them. They tell you how they can end. It has all the things you agree to do, but it also tells you what the escape clauses are when it's not working anymore. And we may be approaching the point where it's really just not working anymore for either of these parties. Let's move on now to another 
somewhat Michigan-centric story, but one that has implications, I think, across the entire country. Uh, Narcan, which is the treatment for opioid overdoses, it can reverse an opioid overdose, uh, has been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, um, is now available over-the-counter at pharmacies. Um, Reading from a uh, story here, uh, ABC News story, the emergency medicine is effective on overdoses overdoses caused by opioids, such as oxycodone, hydrocodone, morphine, codeine, and synthetic fentanyl. Uh, Narcan manufacturer Emergent Biosolutions has shipped thousands of kits and expects them to be available in most local pharmacies this month. The emergency medicine made with naloxone, I believe is how you pronounce it, uh, does have a cost of approximately $45 at a local pharmacy, but community organizations uh, like McLaren Bay Medical Prevention Services give it out for free. So this is clearly in recognition of the opioid epidemic still being an epidemic and still being a problem. Uh, Dylan, you, you were the one who kind of raised this uh, story to our attention. What what sticks out to you about this decision to now make it available over-the-counter in pharmacies? Yeah, so actually Dan brought it up, but <laughs> I do have things to say, so I'll say my things. I um, appreciate the honesty that you can <laughs> claimed credit for this. You know what? I'm, you know. Yeah, I, well, because that puts me in a position of knowing more than I do, so I, I also don't want the credit uh, for that. But uh, I will say, first and foremost— needs to be acknowledged this is a very good thing. Anything that can reduce the loss of life uh, as a result of the opioid epidemic uh, is a good thing. Um, And we should be very happy about it, just in the abstract, uh, that that there are now options that could save someone's life in a crisis. That's a great thing. Um, But there's at least two thoughts I had. One is it's a good thing, but it's, it's treating the symptom of a greater problem and not the problem. Um, Opioids are not cocaine. Um, It's not like the 1980s where people would want to party all night and then go vote for Ronald Reagan. All right. Like you you go to them because you want to like numb yourself to life Um, and not to say that cocaine is good and not trying to say that at all. Uh, But it's a different sort of motive. Um, And there is something uh, going on, uh, especially in rural America, uh, where people are succumbing more and more to despair, um, despairing for their prospects in life um, and finding their present reality intolerable. Um, and so whether it be maybe they started with some kind of chronic pain and got addicted or they just found you know a doctor or someone else who could get it to them illegally um, and they became addicted um, and dependent on you know a, a very, very strong, narcotic. Um, That's a terrible position to be in. And it's not just terrible for them. It's terrible for all of their loved ones, anyone in their family, anyone who loves them and cares about them, but now has to figure out a way to negotiate their relationship with a person who is, uh, you know, continually going down this dark path. Um, So anything that can bring them back from the brink or save them in a crisis, that's a great thing. But we need Uh, And I'm not saying we as in the government, but just the nation as a whole, we need to be thinking about why are people in this situation, Um, especially if if you are in any of these communities or you know any of these people, you need to ask yourself, 
what's going on in this person's life? How do they get to this point? Um, and where can where can they maybe find some renewed hope? Um, you know, certainly as a Christian, I think the gospel is the is the way to go. Um, but I don't. I don't want to naively say the solution to all drug problems is church. You know, uh, it's not that simple. Um, people need communities. They need therapy in some cases. They need programs. Um, so it's going to take a concerted effort of a lot of caring people. Um, and maybe this can be a, a, a very positive step uh, towards, you know, a facility where it's like, come here. We have something to help you in a crisis. And now we're going to help you develop the skills you need to resist this temptation in the future. Um so my only like negative is it's not a big negative because um, again I think overall this is a very positive thing. But I almost wonder worry a little bit if now people will start to say, well, the opioid e- epidemic is not such a big deal anymore um, because well, the, if the loss of life is less of a threat because we have a solution to uh, overdose, um, I think that would be a very bad thing because you should equally care about people who are stuck in this situation, whether or not it is, you know, deadly in the moment. Um, It is deadly for their spiritual lives. It's deadly for their relationships um, in the long term. And that's something that I I hope uh, the nation continues to care uh, and keep its eye on this issue, Um, you know, even in the light of this, this ultimately good news. So we recently had a story in northern Michigan. There was a state trooper uh, officer, uh, Michael Burnside, who responded uh, <clears throat> to a call at a home in Kalkaska County um, and found a man unresponsive, had Narcan, administered it, revived the man. The man has, th- th- has since thanked the officer. Um, it's a wonderful story of this drug being used to save a life. Um, this officer, you know, was able to administer it there, was available to do so. But it's important to remember that you need somebody who cares. In this case, it was the state trooper. I mean, this person was unresponsive. This isn't something, you know, that, you know, as an addict, you can say, oh, I'll just throw some Narcan in my, in my drug, in my, in my, in my, uh, you know, pharmaceutical cabinet or whatever, and then when it happens, I'll be able to administer it. It's, no, you won't. You'll be unconscious. Um, This is something that I am very enthusiastic about law enforcement having. This is something I'm very enthusiastic about mental health workers having. This is something that I'm more hesitant about the general populace having. Partially because um, I'm concerned that this may be used to enable family members. Addiction is a terrible, terrible thing and tears apart families. um, And a lot of times what's needed for somebody to seek recovery is to hit rock bottom. And a lot of times what that involves is family members withdrawing material support that enables a continued addiction. And what I wondered about when I was reading about this is, is there a girlfriend that now is going to feel more responsible for her boyfriend? Is she going to start carrying Narcan around in her purse? Is she, is there, you know, a father 
who has a son that struggles with addiction, is he now going to have the Narcan in his glove compartment? Is this going to, well, this is a very painful circumstance in both cases. Will it take the edge off the anxiety just enough to not try to intervene and to get that person to give up their addiction? Now, these sorts of things are very, very complicated, but I think on the margin, it has an effect. And on the margin, it will also have the effect of, you know, people's lives will be saved because that girlfriend does have the Narcan in her purse and she will find her boyfriend unresponsive and she'll now be in a position to administer it and maybe save his life. But will this change the calculus I mean, we have, there are good things and there are bad things about our disease model of addiction. It's very bad to blame people for this sort of thing. Psychologically, it's not productive to overcome. You know, when these interventions happen, it's people who tell them how much they love them and how much they want to support them and how much they want to see them change and how they think they can do it. And... That's, that's the good point of that disease model of addiction is it allows supportive friends and family members to put some distance between the behaviors they see in the person that they love and who that person really is. The other thing is, is the downside of that disease model of addiction about that, thinking through it that way is thinking about it as a disease like we think about, let's say, uh, diabetes as a disease. Is It's like, oh, no, no, we just put up the insulin monitor and that's how we deal with it. And... And, you know, but people can change. Addictions can be overcome. It's not a disease like, you know, a terminal cancer diagnosis. It's like, no, 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 you can be better. You can be different. You can be the person that you were always meant to be. Um, and that takes help and that takes support. And But I, I worry, you know, whenever you have these medical you know, this is genuine medical progress. This saves real people's lives, but it also can lead us to medicalizing addiction itself in an unhealthy way. So I think, you know, on margin, I would have, I would have, if I were on the FDA board, I would have said, yeah, let's, let's, let's do this because it will save some lives. But I worry about broader cultural effects down the road about, you know, this is, this is something that saves addicts' lives but could potentially also help enable addicts. And, and I'm very cautious about that as well. A good time to point out, as Thomas Sowell has said, that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. Uh, so, again, there's just no thing that is going to fix all of this. And Dylan's point about it treating the symptom is is absolutely correct in, in, in the microcosm sense here. Um, you are, in a very meaningful way, treating the disease by administering Narcan. The disease of addiction to these opioids has resulted in somebody overdosing, and now you have something that is possible to save them from the death that they will almost certainly face from overdosing like that. That's a good thing. But even still in the context of the opioid epidemic, I think, I imagine we would all probably agree, we are still talking about symptoms there. It is, it is a problem of its own, 
but it is representative of a lot larger problems than what you referenced, Dylan, and I had done this interview with Yuval Levin, so check that off your bingo card, people who are listening, Yuval Levin reference, who wrote this point, uh, this piece about basically giving the dark clouds to the silver linings that we were seeing in some social science data, one of those uh, being the, you know, the contrast between the drug of choice in the 1980s being cocaine, something that makes you want to go faster, do more things, take risks, get out there, and opioids, which make you want to pull back. His point was largely this is reflective of the feelings, the attitudes, the sentiments, the emotions of the population that is engaged in these kinds of things. And that they are looking for a way to check out from society is the problem. What is motivating them to want to withdraw from family, from friends, from the world? The thing is, is that there's tying it back to the thing that I always say when we have talked about you know, these terrible mass shooting incidents that public policy cannot fix broken souls. Um, this is another case where, Dan, you're absolutely correct. I mean, public policy, this is a public policy decision. It is not going to fix the real underlying cause of a lot of this. And you know, there are a lot of different complicated stories of how people became addicted to opioids like this. Um, it is going to take uh, really a sense of subsidiarity of people closest to those with those problems, knowing how best to deal with them. But I agree with, I think, what our general sense of this is, which it, it is good that something that can save the lives of people as a last resort, this is truly a last resort tool exists and is more easy now to access because the only way that you can begin to fix the addiction problem, the disease of addiction, and the underlying causes you can begin to address what drove them to the point of addiction is if they're alive. And this is a means of saving lives. And even though it is going to create the negative consequences that I think Dan did a good job of, of laying out there, it is good that we'll be able to save the lives of more people. So again, these things are all complicated. Um, but I think in general, th this is a good thing that the FDA has chosen to do. Let's move to our final topic of the program. Aliens. I believe that we talked before on this program about the congressional hearings in the United States about UFOs, which became hearings about aliens. But there is this incredible story out of uh, Mexico, which really prompts me to make a, like, a joke about Vicente Fox Mulder. Um, I mean, I'm not quite sure exactly how to work that in. Uh, there is but, a Twitter account with that exact Yes, name. You're right, there is. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, just perfectly tailored for this kind of a story. So um, I am correct now. This time it was also Dan who uh, had identified uh, this story and I believe was most enthusiastic about it. So I'm just going to let Dan set up what what is going on in Mexico with the aliens. So that's the question that I'm still in search of an answer to. What you had is somebody, uh, Jamie Masson, who is a notorious UFO hoaxer, 
who has put together, oh, let's just go down to the Wikipedia page here for alien claims, which is, you know, whenever you have a part of your Wikipedia bio. Dedicated to alien claims. Dedicated to yeah, yeah, alien fantastic. claims. That is, that, is, that is like twice as long as the section on your career. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, it is his career, right? Yeah. Isn't it, though? No, he had a real broadcasting career in the 90s, right? Yep. Like, yeah. So, Masson was involved in publishing a specimen dubbed the Metapec creature, which later turned out to be a skinned monkey, as well as a quote-unquote demon fairy in 2016, which turned out to be the remains of a bat, wooden sticks, epoxy, and unknown elements. Uh, there's also a very disturbing... Uh, uh, hoax that actually involved human remains, actual human remains. Um, so this is somebody that is widely known as perpetrating hoaxes that somehow gets invited to address an official government body in Mexico in which the hearings are broadcasts, in which he brings out, they roll out these uh, alien, supposed alien corpses. Um, and I mean, the real story is not the aliens because the aliens are fake. Um, everyone has known that the aliens are fake. Like any reasonable person who knows who this person presenting the alien remains are, is, knows that these are fake. The question is who in the Mexican government thought it would be a great idea to do an alien autopsy hearing in which the aliens are rolled out. This is what I don't understand. Makes for great TV. Um, yeah, I, so that's to me the central question, right? And so this uh, – also with the David Grutch stuff and the U.S. congressional hearings, I, I can't remember if we actually talked about that or not. I think we talked about talking about it. But uh, – um, that's an instance where you had a, a decorated serviceman, um, or at least you know one of good repute. He had he's going through the whistleblower procedures, um, saying he heard that there were documents, he heard there was evidence, he heard, but he actually hadn't seen or heard anything himself. Um, so it kind of came to nothing, but it did dominate the news cycle for about a week. Uh, there was a pretty fringe uh, uh, outlet that first published. Um, uh, an account of his case, and then it got started getting picked up by major news outlets that had previously passed on it. Um, and then you, had, you end up with these congressional hearings. In Mexico, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, there was a video uh, somebody posted uh, when this story broke of the, the same guy and his researchers, supposedly in a lab doing like an MRI scan and, you know, and x-rays and all that of this. And they like, they put on a table and I, they did like these close-up shots of the little alien. And like, I just... It just looked like paper mache. Like, and I'm pretty sure it actually was paper mache. It looked mache. like a bad paper mache ET. Yes. And uh, just uh, really, because I have very little to add on this story, I'm just going to inject this here uh, that. I had a friend send me because he knows I hate these kinds of videos uh, where you see like the little alien guy and they're doing the supposed autopsy and they cut into it and it's cake. And I hate it when they do those things where it looks like a normal object and you cut into it. It's cake. So I feel like part of the story exists just to annoy me Perhaps. individually. So the other the other aspect of that video that I think is worth pointing out is one of the people, maybe Mazen himself, I'm not sure, was wearing a T-shirt with the alien on it. 
which shows that merchandising has already happened, uh, which tells not to say that like if if Space we actually the flamethrower, if, if aliens yes. actually, you know, extraterrestrials actually came and we had real first contact, people would make T-shirts. I get it. Like, I'm not saying it's wrong to merchandise, but clearly there was a plan way ahead of any public reveal to make sure the T-shirts were available. And that does kind of lead me to question the motives and the the actual reliability of what's going on. So to me, the question is, what use is it to the Mexican government to, on the one hand, draw the attention of the world in some ways, but on the other hand, to take up that attention with something so pretty obviously pointless? Um, same thing with the U.S. government and you know these hearings about David Grudge. I'm not a conspiracy theorist person at all, as anyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows. But it does make you wonder, well, what what could this time have been used doing or perhaps what else was going on that we didn't hear about because this was in the news? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, Mexico is – the government of Mexico is not a well-functioning government. It is effectively a narco state. Um, So in a sense, it's not surprising to me that it is dealing in frivolities like this. I I do think that the the only final point that I will make here is that there are unexplained phenomenon, particularly these accounts of like American fighter pilots Mm -hmm. who have seen the movement of other objects as they are piloting their jets that they cannot explain. These kinds of things deserve to be taken seriously and to be investigated because, you know, while it is theoretically possible that it is some kind of alien, truly alien spacecraft, um, the much more likely explanation is that as some kind of Chinese military technology, and we need to be aware of what that technology is and what the implications of it are. Or I hate to say it, weather phenomena. Weather phenomena. Uh, like, only until recently, uh, it was only a few years ago that it's been proven that ball lightning is real yeah. and has some very fascinating behavior, you know, and properties and things like that. Like there's things like that that. Um, yeah, just really, really kind of throw a lot of, you know, it's, it's like a wet blanket to the excitement, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I get it. I get why people are excited. And that's, to me, one of the other sides of this that I think is really interesting is just that, you know, there's a decline of organized religion in the United States and, of course, across the West, although not the rest of the world. Um, but there's really not a decline in religion, mm-hmm. or at least spirituality. You know, even people who religiosity, who, yeah, mark none. Even actually, even atheists. A certain percentage of atheists believe in ghosts and angels, not God, but but they still that would be crazy. But they're still open to some kind of spiritual realities. And that that I think that this maps onto that to some degree as well. Is that people are hoping for something more and something magical. To this world, um, I do think that's a, a very natural and normal and true desire, and I think, unfortunately, this is just kind of a misplaced expression of that. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.